Star Wars Action News is brought to you in part by Brian's Toys. At Brian'sToys.com, you can find Star Wars toys and collectibles from 1977 to the present. Brian's Toys has it all, from vintage toys and action figures right up to the latest releases. And when checking out, be sure to say you were referred to Brian's Toys by Star Wars Action News. So go check out the world's largest selection of Star Wars toys at Brian'sToys.com. listening to Star Wars Action News, your source for Star Wars collecting news, reviews, and updates, helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Be sure to check out our website at SWActionNews.com, where you can see photos of the items discussed, chat with other Star Wars Action News listeners, and much more, including information on how you can be part of the show. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Star Wars Action News. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie. And it's funny, after last year when we were doing the show weekly and honestly because Hasbro has slowed down their shipping schedules and as we await episode 7, the release of new stuff has kind of slowed down. Some weeks we'd be like, well, it's kind of hard to get a show together to go an hour to talk about. So we drop down to every other week and now we find ourselves happily with a glut of new collecting news. In this case, book collecting news. A little later on, I will be talking with Joe Schreiber, author of Darth Maul Lockdown, the recent book set just before The Phantom Menace, dealing with Darth Maul infiltrating a prison on a mission for Darth Sidious. But first, to start off, joining us with an On the Peg segment is Jonathan taking a look at a few Lego sets. Hello all, I'm Jonathan and welcome back to On The Pegs, where we discuss what's being found in stores and online. Now, I don't know how it's been in your neck of the woods, but by me, the search for Hasbro 3 and 3 quarter inch figures has been spotty at best. The only figures I'm seeing with any regularity are the three new Mission Series 2-packs, the Han and Chewbacca, C-3PO and R2-D2, and Clone Wars Obi-Wan and Maul. I've also run across the newer Saga Legends figures, such as the Boba Fett, Captain Rex, Commander Cody, and my personal favorite, the Stormtrooper. Now, I know everyone has their own opinion on these figures, so all I'll say is, if you haven't checked them out in person, do so. While the search for Hasbro has been extremely frustrating, if you're a LEGO collector, the floodgates have opened. Every place that I've gone lately seems to be stocking the new LEGO 2014 sets and there seems to be something for everyone. The first sets are these new Micro Fighters. I've found plenty of all six of these sets at my local Targets, Walmarts, and Toys R Uses. These are the mini vehicles with minifigures sort of posted on top of them. They have an X-Wing with a Luke, a TIE Interceptor with a TIE Pilot, a Turbo Tank with a Clone Trooper, a Millennium Falcon with Han, an AAT with a Battle Droid, and a Star Destroyer with an Imperial Officer. They look pretty cool, but I haven't added any to my collection as of yet. These also connect to an app where you can take your micro fighters through various worlds such as Endor, Yavin, and Hoth. I haven't played the app, but my boys both report that it's a fun, 
if not basic, sort of game. The next sets are this year's Battle Packs, which are essentially four minifigures in a small vehicle. There are three sets for 2014, but more on them a little later. Next up we have the Battle on Seleucami, a set which consists of a battle platform, a bark speeder, and a staff. It also comes with five minifigures, a new bark trooper, two battle droids, and two super battle droids. This lists for about $15. The V-Wing Starfighter is an upgrade from the one released a few years ago and comes with a new clone pilot and astromech droid. Anakin Starfighter is also an upgrade to a previously released set and includes new Anakin and R2-D2 minifigures. The next set is an upgrade to the Vulture droid. This time it seems to have spreadable wings, a lot more articulation, and also comes with a buzz droid, a pilot battle droid, and a new Nemoidian warrior. General Grievous's wheel bike appears to be an all-new set and comes with an all-new Obi-Wan and an all-new General Grievous figure. This one's kind of cool. I think I'm probably going to pick it up because I really want to see how they manage to articulate the wheel bike to move, which it definitely looks like it does. Next, in the $30 range, we have the Droid Tri-Fighter, a nice upgrade to a set we got previously. This one comes with a security battle droid, a regular battle droid, a new buzz droid, and a Chancellor Palpatine figure. The next vehicle is a droid gunship, and this lists for about $50. It comes with a new Chewbacca figure, an elite clone trooper figure, a battle droid, and a super battle droid. Following the Battle of Kashyyyk theme, we get an ATAP and comes with a clone commander Gree, a new Tarful, a battle droid commander, a battle droid, and a super battle droid. The next vehicle I've only been able to find at my local Walmart stores. It's the Republic AV-7 anti-vehicle cannon from the Clone Wars movie. And this one comes with a Plo Koon figure and four Wolfpack clone troopers. Another apparent exclusive is the Coruscant Police Gunship. And this one seems to be only found at Toys R Us. It's a nice set that comes with two Coruscant clone troopers, an Ahsoka Tano, and an Anakin Skywalker. All the new LEGO sets make a point of advertising the fact that they have spring-loaded shooters. Now, I have mixed feelings about this. For the past few years, I've noticed that some LEGO sets have incorporated components that launch or fire, and I thought, okay, it's an added play feature, my kids seem to enjoy it, but these didn't seem to launch very far, and most of the time the missiles or rockets were a bit larger and easy to track down after they'd been fired. These new sets have launching pieces that are as small as a single tab, and speaking as a parent of two very rambunctious boys, I can foresee these things going everywhere. Down the heat fence, into the dog's dish, into each other's eyes, and under the furniture. Not necessarily looking forward to this. The three battle packs that have been released as part of this massive wave are the Kashyyyk Troopers, the Utapau Troopers, and my favorite, the Death Star Troopers. Each set took me less than 15 minutes to assemble and retail for under $13. The Kashyyyk Troopers comes with two orange-colored troopers, two new airborne troopers, and a tri-droid. As somebody who's collected Legos as a child and continues to collect them through my children, I continue to be impressed with the detail that they put into these sets, especially with the minifigures. I sat there staring at the new Airborne Trooper helmet, just marveled at the amount of detail they put in. The Tri-Droid is also kind of a neat thing. It's easy to build, especially for some of the younger kids who want to build Legos, but may have a little bit more difficulty with some of the bigger sets. It has flick missiles and kind of fits well with the figures. 
The next set that I purchased was the Kashyyyk Trooper set, and these come with four new figures and a Swamp Speeder. Now a few years ago we got a larger Swamp Speeder, but this one seems to be scaled down and again much more manageable. It was actually kind of fun to put together, and again these minifigures are great. Both the Scouts and the regular Troopers have that sort of muddy camouflage look, and I feel fit in very well with some of those other bigger Kashyyyk sets that I discussed earlier. The last set is hands down my favorite even though it has a bit of a misleading name. The Death Star Troopers doesn't actually have any Death Star Troopers in it. It has two Death Star Gunners, two Royal Guards, and a Turbo Laser Cannon that, yes, fires things. The detail on these figures, especially the Death Star Gunners, are great. I always love these minifigures that have sculpted faces even though they wear a full helmet. They went as far as to give both of the gunners different expressions. On some of the clone trooper sets, they have identical expressions, which I can understand. They're clones. They're the same. But the Death Star gunners were, from what I understand, supposed to be individuals. Overall, I've been very pleased with the sets that I've purchased so far. I'll probably get more as time and funds allow. That's it for this week. Until next time, keep searching the pegs. Thank you, Jonathan. And joining us now is Joe Schreiber, author of the new Darth Maul book, Lockdown, and author of the previous Star Wars zombie novels, Red Harvest and Death Troopers. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you so much. It's been a while since we've had you on the show. A little over three years ago, we had you on discussing Red Harvest. And I want to start kind of looking back at those two books before we get to Lockdown. What are your recollections of that duology and the fan reaction to them? Well, I remember just having a lot of fun with those books from the beginning. Um, just the concept of the possibilities of being able to bring those horror elements into the Star Wars universe were just a lot of fun to write. And it was just really gratifying to see how enthusiastic um, the response was from the people who read them. So, I, you know, I, I, the whole process to me was, was a lot of fun. And in the past few years, I know you've had several non-Star Wars books published. Can you tell our listeners what you've been working on? Well, during the course of the time that I was sort of revising Red Harvest, I found myself going back to a really different field of uh, of writing that, to me, you know, I felt like this could be as much fun as Star Wars, but very, very different. Um, I, I've been writing young adult novels, um, a couple of them, since that time. Um, they tend to be sort of almost John Hughes-type uh, uh, 80s uh, novels, the sort of things I enjoyed seeing on the big screen when I was a teenager, stuff like uh, movies like Adventures in Babysitting and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but there's quite a bit of gunplay and action and adventure in them as well. Um, there's one called Orvois Crazy European Chick, uh, which was about a, a guy in high school who finds out the foreign exchange student living in his house is actually an assassin, um, and I wrote a sequel to that one. And I've written some books for younger readers as well. Um, I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old at home, and it's cool to be writing stuff for their age group as well. So I've, I've sort of been all over the map. Uh, just kind of enjoying the different possibilities of those other genres. And I know we talked to you, we interviewed you over on our sister podcast, Books and Nachos, for your horror book, No Doors, No Windows. Have you intentionally been kind of moving away from the horror genre? It's a good question. I mean, I guess it's not so much as an intentional thing that I feel like that's just sort of where my imagination has led me. 
which makes sense because it was my imagination that led me into horror to begin with. Uh, my experience has been mainly to sort of follow what my instincts are. The times when I try to impose sort of a willful decision on it, I usually end up with a pretty unsatisfying product. So more than anything else, it's just where I've found my interests going, and I've sort of just tried to maximize uh, the potential of those different different groups. And it's been a lot of fun because I've been able to do a lot of different things, things with humor, um, things for younger readers, as I said, that have just been, been fun in their own way. So um, that's it, less of a deliberate choice, I guess, and maybe more of sort of an instinctive nerve-ending sort of choice. And when Red Harvest came out in very late 2010, how soon after that did you start talking to Del Rey about doing Lockdown? Yep. I had not had a whole lot of conversation with Del Rey um, between, uh, you know, after Red Harvest, they were happy with Red Harvest, and then I sort of went off and, and did some different things. Um, and it, it was a couple of years, I think at least, um, before I heard uh, from uh, Frank Parisi, who's my editor now at Del Rey, but just sort of a one-liner in an email saying, you know, would you be interested in doing a, a, a Darth Maul prison novel? And that was really as, as specific as it, as it got at that point. Um, and it was really an exciting idea. I remember being very, uh, just just all my lights went on at the idea that, you know, it was very general at the time, but I was like, this, this is going to be a lot of fun sort of the same way it was initially when they said, what do you what do you think about a Star Wars horror novel? I just thought, I don't know exactly what that even means, but I know it's going to be a lot of fun. So it just sort of appeared in my inbox, and I was like, thank you, yes, absolutely, I'd love to give that a try. I know from talking with the folks at Del Rey and in Lucasfilm Publishing that they like to go back to their authors and bring back authors who've done good work for them before. Do you know if the Darth Maul in prison concept was something that they specifically were thinking, what would Joe be good to write? Or was it, we have a Darth Maul in prison idea, Joe would be good to write that? That's a really good question. I mean, either way, it's very encouraging uh, to me to just know that they were, you know, this is something that we, we're going to run past Joe and see what he has to say about it. Uh, I think they they saw the potential for a really compelling and and maybe a grittier sort of story because it's set in a prison and because of the work that I had done with those previous two novels, they thought that I might be a good candidate for it. They, it was really a sense of, okay, you know, the books that, I, that I've written are very action-oriented, they're very suspense-driven, and, and the, the chapters tend to be short, and they tend to be pretty compulsive reads, and, and that may have been sort of what they were thinking of with this mall novel, too, something that you could just really blast through, and it would, it would sort of be a ride. It would be an enjoyable um, sort of slingshot experience. Um, and, and so that, that may be why my name came up for it. I don't know. Do you have any insight into why they were wanting a book about Darth Maul in prison so specifically? I think that a lot of these sort of concepts just get tossed around uh, back and forth between Del Rey and Lucasfilm because I think that for a while they've been trying to incorporate a broader sort of genre uh, or array of genres into Star Wars books. So you have books like uh, Kenobi, which is a, almost a Western, um, and you have other Star Wars novels that go in other directions. And, and everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, I personally love the prison genre uh, of movies. I love prison movies. I, I love books that are set in prison. And I think, you know, that may have been the beginning of it. You sort of think, well, what, what, what can we do with Maul that's cool? I mean, here's this very sort of intent, I would say, underused so far. I mean, in this conversation with the four Mauls that have reappeared in the Clone Wars, we wanted to see more of Maul, but we weren't sure what kind of environment would bring out his stronger and, and more compelling qualities. And a prison uh, genre sounded, to me, 
like, you know, a cool choice. So I can only imagine it was one of those conversations that took place maybe at a bar, you know, at a convention or something. <laughs> it was like, well, what about, you know, what about mall in prison? And, and everyone's like, well, that could be awesome, you know, like, or imagine like, uh, you know, Escape from New York, except instead of Snake Plissken, you've got, you've got Darth Maul sort of going in on this mission, like, immediately these great scenarios just spring to mind. So I think it was one of those things where the, the key just fit the lock and the, the door just swung open. Now, you said you're a fan of prison-type stories. What kind of stories, you know, movies, books, and things that you've read, prison stories, helped influence and shape your writing of Lockdown? Well, I said definitely John Carpenter's uh, Escape from New York. I, I saw that movie when it first came out, and it just blew my mind. I remember reading the novelization of it, too, and just thinking, this is the best movie ever. I mean, I was just like, there's, you know, how cool can this, how much cooler could this get? You've got this really just tough customer, a snake Plissken, you know, who gets sent into prison on purpose. Well, first of all, the world building of the idea of in the future Manhattan is a, is a prison island, I just, it was so good. You know, it was so, it was so concisely set up and done. And everything about that movie, I think, holds up so well. But that would definitely be one that I would name. Um, then again, just other cool prison films. I mean, Escape from Alcatraz, you know, um, uh, Papillon, the Steve McQueen, is a, uh, where it's on Devil's Island. Another great, you know, really kind of gritty prison film um, where people are suffering and you meet these really cool, you know, prison archetypes. There's the guy who, you know, can can you know get things for you, and then there's the there's the guy who's trying to plan his escape, and there's the guy who's kind of stuck up to the guards, and you know, and there's the outsider, and all these cool archetypes that we enjoy seeing in in prison uh, movies that were a huge you know inspiration and nonfiction as well. Um, there's a great book called a nonfiction book called Leavenworth Train, which is a historic account of two guys that hijacked a supply train out of Leavenworth Prison after carving pistols out of wood in wood shop. And they hijacked this train in the United States, especially escape from Leavenworth um, prison. And one of them, I think, was was falsely accused to begin with. So you've got this great, you know, real life story of a guy who, you know, breaks out of prison because he doesn't have any other choice. So I love stories like that. I always have. And um, delving back into those again, it's sort of a place to stand to write this small book. It's just a great excuse to revisit some of the genres and some of the um, stories that I've always enjoyed. Yeah, that's very cool. I've always been a big, especially 80s John Carpenter Escape from New York kind of fan myself. So yeah, nice to hear those influences coming into the Star Wars EU. How long did you take to write this book? You mentioned that the Darth Maul ideas were done before he was in the Clone Wars series. The conversation started before um, those episodes had come out. And when we first started talking about it, we were talking about it being a sort of post-Clone Wars Maul, like, after he'd been rebuilt, after he'd sort of started down this uh, Tony Montana kind of uh, character arc of rising up to build his galactic crime empire, we're like, well, maybe, you know, at some point, maybe that's when he lands in prison. And so, you know, and, and I sat down, I was able to read some of the unproduced uh, Clone Wars scripts that they hadn't even animated yet, so to see, like, where I'm all going to be at this point. And then uh, along those same uh, timelines, uh, the Disney buyout happened and things started to get changed around with the future of a lot of Star Wars properties. And we started thinking about, well, okay, let's pick up Maul at a different point in his life. Let's pick him up, you know, maybe more in the timeline that we see him in, in, in James Lucino's book, uh, Dark Plagueis. Uh, wh what about that? And, and that, that was like, oh, that could really, really work too, because Maul is in that novel. Um, he figures into it, uh, and, and we thought there's some really fertile soil here too for why he might, uh, be sent to this, this prison planner, can, can we take advantage of some of the great work that, that Jim did in Darth Plagueis um, to sort of tie that in and make Lockdown kind of a shadow 
uh, that that book, uh, Dark Plagueis, cast, so that you could read that and read this in the two um, and sort of be complementary to one another. And yeah, this book has been somewhat billed as a follow-up to the Darth Plagueis book, and it takes place during the events of that book. Did you have any conversations with Jim Lucino while you were writing? Jim was looped into a lot of the early back-and-forth emails between me and uh, and Frank uh, and, and Erich, uh, Sean Williams and Delray, where we were all sort of kicking around, like, you know, uh, would Plagueis do this? Would uh, Sidious do this? What, what would Maul uh, do this? What would his mindset be? Like, how, how much would he know about the sort of, quote-unquote, Sith grand plan? How would that factor in? What would be appropriate and realistic within the boundaries that Jim sort of set up? Because his book is a great book. It's, it's one of my favorite new books. And one of the things I like about it is how intelligent it is. The dialogue that he, he does between Sidious and Plagueis is so good. I think he captures those characters so well. And this very sinister aspect, the backstabbing aspect of, of the politics of what's going to happen at that point, in the Star Wars universe, it's just a great um, starting off point. So I thought, like, why would I ever not use this material as, as well as I could for, for Maul? And uh, Jim was really, really gracious and just gave all kinds of constructive notes along the way as we were sort of plotting out where Maul uh, lockdown would go. And I... I'm going to ask a couple more questions about the timeline in a second here. I did want to say, you know, Darth Maul's a character that was only in the one film, but has had several books, short stories, and then the Clone Wars episodes he was in. How much research into Darth Maul's non-movie appearances did you have to do for the book? I, I did a lot. I basically thought out and read whatever I could from um, sort of non-canon uh, comic uh, book appearances to... Um, a really good short story that Jim wrote about Maul called Restraint. Uh, that's a e an ebook that you can download. Um, I, I basically tried to find Maul anywhere that I could find him. Uh, I sort of felt like I was a detective, sort of tracking him down sometimes. And, okay, he's over here, and, and he came over there, and, and there still wasn't a whole lot of interior stuff about him. How his mind would work. I mean, I still felt like there was a, a lot of potential for that to be done, but I really did try to. Um, locate as much as I could as far as what was out there because I felt like not only is it appropriate for writing this book, but it just turned out to be a lot of fun. It turned out to be, oh, wow, okay, there's a sort of a patchwork image that we have of him. How can this fit together so that he can be the most three-dimensional character that we can make him um, in, this, in this prison environment? And along that lines, I mean, you really flesh out Darth Maul by having this strong third-person perspective. We get inside Maul's head in this book, which... You know, a lot of the other fiction, like if you look at Darth Maul's Shadowhunter, we didn't really get into his mind that much or in the Plagueis book because he was more of an antagonist or a presence there versus here where you actually have him as the protagonist. Right. And given all of his history that has been introduced in the Clone Wars, and you mentioned that those episodes hadn't been produced yet, but you got to read them, there's not a lot of Darth Maul reflecting back on his life. You do have one moment where he thinks back to his childhood on Dathomir, but there were few other types of references. How did you decide how much background to bring to your characterization of him? That's a really good question. I felt like well, I did want to kind of include that, because I feel like what Maul's been through to get to this point is going to be hugely influential as far as the decisions he's making and just the sort of grim you know, refusal to give up, even in really, really unfathomably hopeless situations. Like, he literally can't quit until he's dead. Um, so I wanted to include that. Ryder Linden did a really good uh, book 
uh, about Maul's um, early life, and that was a, you know, just you get a sense of how raw and how harrowing some of his early experiences were, so I wanted to include a little bit of that. Um, I, I just didn't want, I guess I'm always sort of leery about introducing more backstory than is necessary and slowing the, slowing the plot down. I didn't want to get in the way of extra exposition, even if I wrote some of that stuff in, which I, I think I actually did. At one point, like, there was more backstory in the manuscript, and it got taken out because I felt like, okay, we're, we're primed to see all in these situations. We really don't want to stop the show and go back and reflect on stuff that, I mean, for many readers, there's going to be stuff we sort of already know. We know, you know, how he trained, and we know how relentless, um, you know, if you've read any of the EU stuff, like, we know how relentless his, his backstory was. Um, and we don't need to, to stop and flash back to that necessarily. So I wanted to nod, nod, nod to it, but not really make it um, a cornerstone of the story. Now, you mentioned the timeline and how you had conversations with Del Rey and Jim Lucino about it. Did you fret too much about all the stories that are taking place in this timeline right before the Phantom Menace because Darth Maul Shadowhunter was seeming to lead right into the Phantom Menace from there and Darth Plagueis leads you know takes place and overlaps a little bit with the Phantom Menace and now we have lockdown set between Shadowhunter and the film was it restrictive when you were writing to figure out all of these continuity loops not really and I can't tell if that's because I'm just I don't tend to be a fretful uh writer for the most part and, and, and I think part of it is I just trust wiser heads at Delray and Lucasfilm to steer me away from uh, the iceberg of, of continuity collision. Um, they sort of navigate, and I, I trust them completely. Um, I don't think I could probably sit down and enjoy writing if I was sweating it out too much for them to kind of step in and say, okay, this, this is too close to this. They're sort of my air traffic controller. I'm, I'm flying the plane, but they're telling me where everything else is and keeping me from running into anything. Um, I feel like the general answer to that question, though, is the time before Phantom Menace is just an incredibly fertile time. A lot happens in Phantom Menace uh, uh, that, you know, there's, it's like it's like the period of time before World War One. I. I mean, World War One broke out, but leading up to that, you had all these kind of alliances forming, and this almost conspiracy of arrangements between countries and circumstances that somebody touched off, you know, with the assassination of, you know, Franz Ferdinand. And the World War One broke out. But leading up to that, you see all these sort of interesting threads coming together. And I think you could almost describe that time in the Star Wars timeline before Phantom Menace and the Phantom the Time. There's an awful lot going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of interesting characters. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, it is such a fertile sort of area to work in um, and why probably Galloway wasn't too worried about uh, lockdown taking place during that same period of time. And while we're speaking of continuity, Del Rey is really promoting, there's this great graphic going around Facebook from the opening scene of this book. It's a great fight, Darth Maul versus a Yuuzhan Vong. And it's one of those great, you know, things EU fans have wondered about. It's like, uh, my dad can beat up your dad or Spider-Man can beat up <laughs> Batman type of thing. But yeah. It, it's a concept that seemed that we wouldn't get to see because the EU had established the Yuuzhan Vong as not being in the galaxy except in heavy disguise until long after Return of the Jedi. Right. It's a great start to this book, but did you have any uh, reaction from fans about the continuity of including a Yuuzhan Vong in this way? That was actually kind of a funny thing because originally... And if you notice the story, the characters never refer to it as the Yuuzhan Vong. It's described that way. And, and I did a reading on Star Wars Day where I read the first chapter of this book, and I said, 
polled the audience. They said, you can identify this. And, of course, somebody nailed it right away. But they were really careful. Delray was very careful to say, you know, he can he can have a, a fight with this character. We, we're not going to know what creature this species is saying is. So you can't refer to it that way um, in the story. And that was sort of our workaround. Uh, that's another good example of them sort of saving my bacon by saying, you know, you can't call it that. So, you know, for better or for worse, that, that was our solution. Um, and I'm sure that for, if you were pressed, you could probably, we could probably come up with an excuse for why that particular species showed up there. Um, but that, that's sort of why we uh, don't name it for what it is. And Darth Maul's mission in this prison is to find a weapons maker, Radik. And Sidious adds a restriction, a little extra bit of difficulty to his mission, that Maul isn't allowed to use the Force lest he give himself away as a Sith or even a Force user. Did this restriction help make the story more interesting to write, or did it make it harder for you to write Darth Maul as a character? For me, it made it way more interesting. I, I've always sort of preferred um, some restrictions when it comes to, especially when it comes to characters like Maul who have access to, you know, really, really, I mean, especially in comparison to the, the inmates around him, you know, with full of access to his uh, dark uh, side powers, he would be nearly, you know, unstoppable. And, and I really felt like when we established this, this uh, restriction on his ability, he immediately became a more interesting character to write. He, he was forced to become more resourceful. He became more vulnerable, which strengthens, you know, the, the antagonist, which immediately the story becomes more interesting um, when, when your character is not just walking in and taking charge of every scene. Um, it gave me an opportunity just to show him hurt and then sort of doing some really primitive sort of strength-building exercises and, and corners. Um, I think when they wrote the copy for the back of the book, it said something like the power of the dark side is never more dangerous uh, than when it's cornered. One of the things I always liked about Maul is how much he seemed like a predator, like that one moment in the duel in Phantom Menace where we see him pacing back and forth, to me, just spoke volumes about his character. He, he, he seems like a, a tiger in a cage. Like, he, he's pacing and he's primed to attack. But there's some restraint involved, and that makes him even more interesting. And the prison in which you have Darth Maul has this wonderful concept in that it can actually change shape, the rooms can change size and reconfigure completely. And at times in my mind, I started picturing like an M.C. Escher painting, but I was wondering if you could tell us what object or imagery inspired you when creating this prison. The prison Cog High 7 is, as you said, it's, it's this sort of fully articulated prison. It's sort of this, this clockwork nightmare of a... Uh, of cogs and flywheels and, and almost but not quite um, steampunk kind of, um, you know, uh, articulation. I envisioned it as like the ultimate, you know, 1979 Kenner place that writ large um, combined with just, you know, a, a, a huge, huge amount of mechanical gears and, and cogs that work together. Um, and, and I just, as soon as I started thinking about it in those terms, I was really excited by the possibility of it. The fact that it would be automated and the fact that it would sort of be responding to a, a really brilliant piece of software that somebody had written, um, an algorithm that would maximize the amount of mayhem and, and create the most exciting possible bout between two inmates. So basically, the, the, the algorithm uses all sorts of stats and, and, uh, and uh, information about individual inmates to sort of create the ultimate battle every time. And then the prison responds to the algorithm. So I, I was excited to, to write about that. I felt like, you know, to be in the middle of something like that would be a really, like, overpowering, consensual experience, even by itself, let alone you would never know when you heard the, 
the prison activate whether your number was up, whether you were going to be one of the ones, you know, reconfigured into a, into a battle to the death. So I was, I was excited to write those themes, and I thought, like, this is a very visual thing. I would love to see something like that, you know, involved in a video game or something, just because I think it would be a really cool environment. It's never quite stable. It's never the same twice. Um, and it's, it's sort of this, this, this full of thing that's just constantly pitting, potentially pitting you against your, your would-be murderer. That was always fun. I love the way it literally kept things mixed up in that regard. <laughs> right. Uh, my last non-spoiler question. I know for Death Troopers and Red Harvest, you published playlists of music that kind of helped you get in a mood when writing those books and you felt conveyed the attitude of those books, some Motley Crue, some Nine Inch Nails, some Rob Zombie. Did you have a playlist for Lockdown? I did. Um, and I didn't really publish it, but it really was. It sort of finds its way through the books or a series of Easter eggs, uh, either in song titles or even um, in individual uh, individual lines of narrative in the book. Um, you know, I, somebody asked me at one point, like, what, what's the playlist look like? There's definitely a reference in one of the songs, or one of the, one of the, uh, chapter titles to the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there's a song called, uh, Jesus Make My Dying Bed, which turned into In My Time of Dying, which ties into the theme. Um, there's definitely some, uh, tips of the hat to, uh, one of my favorite bands, Rush, whose, uh, lyrics provide some of the, some of the, um, chapter titles and some of the dialogue and lines within the book. So I'm always, you know, listening to music, old music, but I grew up with new music that's exciting to me. And so there, there was a playlist, and it was sort of always changing, but um, it sort of affected the way that I thought about the tone of the book as I went along, because it is kind of a rock and roll book. I mean, it is kind of a, an off-the-wall, uh, sort of unpredictable um, story, and it seemed like, you know, rock and roll would be a good, a good soundtrack to do now, I want to get into a couple of spoilers from the book, so listeners who haven't yet read Lockdown, you may want to skip to the end of this interview, but uh, one character that you included as part of the story, and I'll be honest, I had to hit Wikipedia to refresh my memory of where I'd seen her before, was Kamari Vosa. Uh, were you familiar with this Lost Jedi before you included her in the story? Only peripherally. It's also really forced me to do some footwork as far as where have we seen her before and uh, what is she capable of. You know, I actually found myself going back to the old um, uh, Jangle Set Bounty Hunter game where, where she appears and looking at some of the footage for that. Um, I, I really liked uh, Vosa's backstory with Count Dooku and uh, the more I found out about it, the more interesting in it I was in, in, in her character and, and how Maul might perceive someone who... Um, you know, former uh, Jedi, but then went on to launch this crazy, you know, death cult. And I, I was excited to write her character, but I knew almost nothing about her. And I had to go to a friend of mine who's a, a much, much bigger uh, Star Wars geek than I am, just an encyclopedic knowledge. And I was like, you know, help me out. And uh, he was able to steer me in the right direction. And then much of the book focuses on Darth Maul's hunt for Radik. And I'll admit, I was a bit surprised in how it resulted because I expected like a Kaiser Soze kind of twist. I mean, you mentioned that uh, Zero has two names. I expected Radik would be someone in the general populace who Maul was interacting with and didn't realize, and it turned out to be a, a Chiss in hiding. Was it your intent to kind of play with the reader in that regard and to uh, defy our expectations? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, I mean, there were drafts, there was at least one draft of the book where, uh, Radik did turn out to be a character that we had already met. 
And no matter how I tried to gussy it up and and, uh, and, and disguise that, uh, the response from Del Rey was always like, we saw that come. They were just like, yeah, we knew. But I really didn't want that to be the case. And I really, so ultimately for me, it came down to, and I remember asking this, I was like, how important is it to you guys that we have him be someone we've already met? And they were like, actually, they said, in the, you know, in the interest of, of kind of upending expectations, maybe he should not be someone we've already met, you know? Instead of it being this, you know, this sort of Scooby-Doo moment of, you know, old man Jenkins, it was you the whole time, like, um, we, why don't we do something, you know, a little bit different? And so, and I was like, oh, okay, that was, that was actually kind of liberating. I was like, okay, then, then it can be, you know, somebody completely new. And there was part of me that was kind of, you know, mournful about it, because I did, I like the whole, you know, Kaiser Sozi idea of, you know, oh, well, verbal kids, you know, we trusted this guy, and he's the cornerstone. Um, but in this, in this situation, you know, their, their advice was, I feel like, a good, a good direction to go in. So that's, that's how that sort of ended up going that direction. But it did not go that way. So, you know, we, I did, you know, other drafts where it wasn't that way and, and sort of ended up with that. And the mute brother, uh, Dakari, was the biggest red herring to me for the identity of Radik. Was there one misdirect in particular you enjoy more than the others? Well, I mean, he, there's a version of the book where he was Radik. <laughs> so um, <laughs> he turned into a mis, he turned into a misdirect after he was sort of a misfire as the, the main character. Um, I, I just, you know, after a certain point, I, I actually enjoy, I enjoy red herrings when they're well done and, and I almost feel like in order to make them successful, at least for me, I almost have to buy into it myself. So that probably, you know, works because it was my answer for a while and it's sort of in the shifting direction. And we find out Radik is working on a new weapon. He's an arms dealer and he's trying to make replica lightsabers. And I love the concept and how Darth Maul, knowing lightsabers so well, plays into it. But I, I couldn't help but wonder who would buy the lightsabers since you have to be a force user in order to really wield one. Yeah, you might have to look at that question through the, the questionable logic of, of an inmate or a, of a, you know, a sort of crime lord at that point thinking, you know, I, I would say that in order to truly understand what's required to master the art of the lightsaber, you almost have to already be a Jedi or so. From the, I imagine it being one of those weapons where if you look at it from the outside, it looks relatively effortless, you know, something that, oh, give me a few minutes so that I can figure it out. Um, it would require the sort of, you know, short-sighted arrogance of a, of a gun thug or of a, of a, you know, crime lord or of a galactic hustler to think that it's something you could stick on and just use. I will say that was one of the most fun scenes to write, though, with the whole, like, uh, the dupe lightsaber that just doesn't do what it's supposed to do and that sort of gruesome moment. Um, that was actually suggested by Arish, uh, Sean Rice at Delray. He's like, can you imagine what would happen if somebody used one of these unstable lightsabers and didn't know what they were doing? I'm like, <laughs> it would be horrible. I was immediately like, oh, I can't, I can't wait to write that scene. That's going to be a lot of fun. But that was his suggestion and it was a really good one. Oh, I love that scene. And, you know, I'm a fan of your previous work and like the skin hill and all of that. So it brought me back to that kind of level of gore <laughs> while not being yeah. scary. So very, very cool scene there. Finally, I talked about the Yuzan Vong fight, but I love the way this book has the action scenes as Maul goes up against stronger and stronger opponents, and including a Wampa. Uh, what was the battle <laughs> you had the most fun writing? Probably the Wampa battle. I mean, I, I, I really felt like that was a scene where I was excited to get into it. Um, I didn't have the Wampa action figure when I was a kid, but I did have the Hop race guy. Hop has always been one of my favorite, you know, Star Wars uh, backgrounds. I love that whole part of Empire. I think it's so strong. Um, I grew up in Michigan where it snows six months of the year. 
So I was like, yeah, that would really stink because you have to live in snow all the time. And, um, so I love Wampas. I love uh, this, you know, the sauce, and I love the idea of having the Wampa, you know, as part of the spice. So that was that was probably my favorite one to uh, to, to dig into. All right. Well, Darth Maul Lockdown is in stores now. Joe, can you tell our listeners what else you have coming up for publication? Uh, next month, I have a book coming out from Houghton Mifflin called Game Over, Pete Watson. Uh, it's it's not a Star Wars novel. It's actually a book about a, a kid uh, in middle school who finds his dad's old 1980s video game system in the basement, and he needs money, so he decides to sell it at a yard sale, and he doesn't realize that his dad's actually a CIA agent, and the game system is a portal into a government database. So once he sells it, he basically leaves the United States completely vulnerable to the attack of a archer villain who, among other things, built a giant robotic cockroach to attack a video game convention. <laughs> so it's a book for uh, it's a book for middle grade readers, but it, it was a lot of fun to work on. So that's that's coming out uh, next month. All right. Well, Joe, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed reading Lockdown, and I hope we get a chance to speak again in the future. Great. Thank you so much. And that is it for this bonus episode of Star Wars Action News. We will be back next week with the usual collecting news, both in-store and online. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can be on the next episode of Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at SWActionNews.com. All materials submitted are subject to use on our show. We want your feedback on Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at SWActionNews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at SWActionNews.com the most friendly forums on the web. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook and Twitter. The links to our social media sites are at SWActionNews.com. If you enjoyed the show, please post about Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media network of choice, or just tell a friend about the show. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star written review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed is at SWActionNews.com. If you also enjoy Marvel Comics, you can hear Arnie and Marjorie talk about the toys and statues based on Marvel Comics characters on the Marvelicious Toys podcast at MarveliciousToys.com. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, edited, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. Star Wars Action News podcast video enhancement by Andrew, Daryl, and Barrett. Star Wars Action News website design by Jason. Photo editing by Jay. Graphic design by Chris. Associate produced and announcements by Brock. Segments hosted by Jerry, Jonathan, Brock, Nathan, and Steve. For more Star Wars collecting, please check out GalacticHunter.com, JediDefender.com, JediTempleArchives.com, and YakFace.com. And we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. All rights reserved. 
Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the force be with you. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting.